Please take your seats and turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at Romans this week and then next week, and then we'll have a different sermon for our fourth and final week of these farewell sermons. And to whet your appetite for the excellent study I know the elders and Kyle will be doing in Sunday school in the weeks to come. And we are in Romans chapter 2 this morning, and I'm reading from the New King James Version for a host of reasons, not least of which because I've done some extensive memory work back when I was a medical student in Romans in the New King James Version, and it's, if I read any other version, it kind of cranks my neck, and I end up finishing every verse the wrong way, so you'll excuse me, but you'll find it very similar to the ESV as you read along with me in your copy. This is the Word of God as Paul turns his attention to his, the Jewish members of his audience. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there's no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Indeed, you who are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? 
And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, human beings have an extraordinary and astonishing capacity for self-justification, for proving that we are right and everybody else is wrong. I've been reading a book recently called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, and it's really driving home this uh, capacity in politicians but also down in every single human being. We have a wonderful way of sidestepping blame and responsibility. We'll tell our wives or our our husbands, you made me angry. And so it's not really our fault that we got angry. It was really their fault. They um, poked the dragon, as it were. What is self-justification? It's what happens when our ego shields ourselves from reality from the shame we should feel because of the inconsistency of our actions. We all do it, and we do it the most when we think we're not doing it at all. So, at times it can be quite comical. You might think, this is not autobiographical, I hasten to add this, but you've just come out of the movie theater, you've watched Mission Impossible 9.6, whatever the iteration is. You've seen Tom Cruise drive his Fiat 500, which is slightly larger than a a mini dad Coke can, through the streets of Vienna at 500 miles an hour, and you're walking back to your car, man, you think to yourself, you know, I'm an above-average driver. I could have been a stunt driver if I'd had the opportunity. I'm I'm really good. And you go into the the high-rise parking garage, and you find your car there, and you get in, and you, you turn on the ignition, you feel the engine roar to life under your feet, you stick it in reverse, and you accelerate too quickly out of the space, sideswiping your car against a four-by-four concrete um, pillar. And the, the crunching sound of your mirror falling to the ground is the cue for self-justification to get into action, because you've got these two voices. On the one hand, you're, the voice is saying, you are an above-average driver. On the other hand, you're saying, you idiot, you just crashed into a four-by-four piece of concrete that a legally blind baboon could have avoided. And so you get out of the car and you start saying, well, it wasn't painted yellow. I mean, it's a gray piece of concrete in the middle of a garage. Of course I couldn't see it. And then you look at the car beside you, it's one of those fat cat big SUVs, oversized. He's parked skew whiff in his, 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 his space, his wheels half in, half out of your space. And you go, of course I crashed into the pillar. His car guided me. He parked his car wrong. It wasn't really my fault. It was his fault all along. And we justify ourselves. Or sometimes you may be getting into a commercial airline, and you're walking down the gangplank, assuring yourself that you're an above-average American citizen. You look at all the rest of the unwashed walking alongside you, and then you've got to make your way past all those fat cats in first class. And you think, well, at least I didn't spend $600 on a ticket. What a waste of money. And you pride yourself as you walk past to the uh, no-foot, no-legroom coach department. But it only takes the kindness of the lady at the check-in desk to upgrade you. 
And then you get to sit in those hallowed seats with all that leg room and the leather armpits, and you, you, you're stretching yourself out with all of the rich and famous. You think to yourself, oh, this is the way to travel. And you see all of the hoi polloi walking past you to coach, and you think, enjoy the new leg room. And how quickly we, we kind of swing from one to the other, condemning to justifying ourselves. And you know, the same thing can happen not just when you walk onto an airplane or a high-rise parking garage for an accident, but the same thing can infect our minds every time we darken the door of a church. We walk in, we think to ourselves, you know, I'm a good Christian. Not only am I a good Christian, I'm a Presbyterian. Thank you, God, for not making me a non-denominationalist. But there's the other side of your psyche that talks to you as well. I have this awfully envious heart that someone at work, somebody at college, somebody gets a promotion I want, a job I want, and I find my heart is downward spiraling in jealousy and envy. I have this murderous anger toward my children when they can't do their math in homeschooling, or when somebody gets in my way in the road, this murderous anger. This awful, backbiting, snippy way of responding to my spouse when they tread on my toes. I'm actually pretty good at lying to you. I, I, I lie to my spouse. I lie to my children. I lie to my parents. I lie to my co-workers. I, I'm a deceiver. I'm pretty good at lying. And you start thinking, oh. And my mind, the, 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 the inner dialogue of my mind is awful people could see what I was thinking in my mind, they, 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 they wouldn't want to sit beside me in church. And we think, but yes, but nobody's perfect. As Pastor Stewart always says, never judge your insides by everybody else's outsides. They're probably just as bad as I am. You might think to yourself, well, you know, I may be on the beach looking leeringly at girls in bikinis, but at least I'm not looking at hardcore porn like some of the other people in church that Pastor Church speaks to. And I may lose my temper at my children in homeschooling, but at least I'm homeschooling them. I'm not like one of those career women out in the world worshiping her career and after the, the dollar and the buck and the fame. And we kind of play the one voice against the other. I may be a sinner. I go to church, and I sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, and I try to mean them when I do. And in a sense, that's the mindset that Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 1. He's speaking to the Jews. There's a big conflict in the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were kicked out in AD 49 by Claudius's decree, and when they return to their church in Rome two or three years later, they find the church is full of Gentiles doing like low country, low country boiled and sucking the head of crawfish, and it's just not kosher. And there's a lot of tension, and so through Romans, and you'll see this in Sunday school, Paul is constantly addressing the Jews and um, the Gentiles. And the Jews, Paul's concern is that they use the rites and rubrics and rituals of Judaism and maybe even Christianity, those who are complete in Christ, and yet, but they use those rites and rituals and rubrics to medicate uh, the deep brokenness of their heart. Rather than going to the cross, they go to church or synagogue, and that's the answer to the brokenness and the shame and the guilt they feel deep inside. And Paul is 
addressing them. So the question this morning in our text is, how can you and I avoid making the same mistake? How can we avoid becoming religious hypocrites? Because the New Testament is full of concern regarding the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's all the way through all of the Gospels, and it's all the way through Paul's writings, Romans, Galatians, and so forth. Why? Because everywhere religion raises its head, and people get good at doing the rites and rituals and rubrics, they start to think that going to church can fix the problem when they need to be going to the cross. And Paul is addressing that problem here in this passage. So, how can you medicate, how can you treat religious hypocrisy when it rises in your head and in my head? And Paul has four things to say. First of all, you must consider the danger of seeing everybody else's sin, but not your own. You see that there in verse 1, therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Now, Paul's been speaking in Romans 1, you remember, he's been describing the Gentiles who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, who refuse to listen to the voice of God in creation and in conscience, and therefore Um, their culture is unraveling in this sexual debauchery and uncleanness. And Paul says there, even as you do not like to retain God in your knowledge, God has given them over to a debased mind to do those things that are not fitting, being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Isn't it interesting? Paul puts disobedience to parents right there in the midst of this list of the signs of a culture gone to hell. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And Paul's exposing Gentile sins. And he's getting more amens from the Jewish quarter than a primitive Baptist preacher condemning the NIV and those who read it in a tent meeting. (laughs) They're going, preach on man. Preach it, Paul. Preach it. Yes. And then Paul in a dime turns, therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against all those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? And you can hear a pin drop in the church. The Gentiles or the Jews, they know enough to condemn their Gentile neighbors, but they can't seem to see that when they condemn them, they condemn themselves. Because as Paul said later on, you preach that a man should not steal, but you steal. You fudge your tax report. You fudge your end-of-year, end-of-month expense report. You say don't commit adultery. You use pornography. Like Ted Haggard preaching against homosexuality and yet cavorting with a male prostitute behind the scenes. 
And it's, it's so easy that we have this sharp-eyed ability to point out the sins in the world, other people's sins, but we can't see our own sins. We can't see our own brokenness and our own deep-seated need of Christ and a Savior. So, you can be that lady or that man who condemns other people's gossips. Gossiping such gossips. Always. Other people's coffee is never sweet unless someone's being condemned over it. And yet, your gossip, oh, it's different from me. I gossip in my prayer circle because it's purely for prayer. I want to try and encourage the other sisters to pray for this poor person. I'm so concerned about their marriage or their, their children. Or men, you hear another husband berating his wife in Home Depot because you can't tell the difference between a screw, a nut, and a nail. And you think, what a chump. He's so rude. And yet you, you're sitting in the afternoon watching a football game, and your wife comes and asks you to change a light bulb, and you point her to the garage because there's a ladder in there that's light enough for her to carry. <laughs> I'm watching the game, love. Just give me five minutes. but it's justified because she should have known better. I mean, I was free in the morning. She could have asked me in the morning to do it, but I'm watching the game now. She should know better. We see it so clearly in Home Depot when the guy's been rude to his wife, but we can't see it when we're being cold and rude to our spouse. And besides, she should know better than to interrupt me during the game. Consider the danger of seeing everybody else's sins so clearly and not seeing your own sins at all. Have you ever felt the need in the sense that you are a sinner? There's a famous story when Lloyd-Jones was in America way back, probably in the 50s, I forget when this happened, but he's preaching in America on his first tour there. He's at this church, and this, this very wealthy lady who was a big tither came to the door, and the pastor nudges him and says, She's a big tither. In other words, mind your P's and Q's. And she walks up to him and goes, you're the first preacher who ever spoke to me as if I was a sinner. And the pastor's going, gulp. <laughs> and she said, I'll be back tonight. Beware of seeing everybody else sin, not your own. Secondly, Paul says, you must consider God's goodness in connecting you to the church. It's goodness with design. Therefore, you are an excusable, O man, whoever you are, a judge. For whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That these Jews were so proud of their religious privileges, but they forgot that the whole purpose of those religious privileges was to draw them to repentance, to draw them to Christ. Have you ever think, have you ever consider children, teenagers, the goodness of God, how good God has been to you? And that goodness is not designed to make you proud and puffed up, but it's designed to make you humble and repentant. The goodness of God in giving you baptism, a, a sign of the mercy of God, that before you ever thought of God, God has thought of you, that God loves you, that you belong to Him, He's marked you out as His 
Did you live as if you belonged to God? Has that singular mercy drawn your heart to repent and to give yourself to Jesus Christ? He's been good to you in giving you the Bible. Later in chapter 3, Paul says, What advantage then has the Jew? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Paul doesn't say the chief blessing of being a Jew is God's promise to save them. God has not promised to save every Jew without distinction, but He has given every Jew without distinction the oracles of God, that you aren't left groping in the darkness for meaning in this world, that God has given you children and you parents the box stop, the box top of the jigsaw of life. There is meaning, there is purpose, ethics are real and true. And you don't have to group and try and figure it out by yourself. The Bible is the golden thread that leads us through the inexorable labyrinth of life. It's a massive blessing. It's also been good to welcome you into the felt reality of New Testament worship, that the powers of the age to come are at work here. You know the way um, the writer of the Hebrews describes it? speaking of those who were once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, perhaps a reference to the Lord's Supper, who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and yet these people fall away and never return. But he said, but he's describing the blessings of being part of the church, tasting the Word of God, feeling the powers of the age to come at work here. And you know that. You've been here, and you are here, and you feel the Holy Spirit, the, the good shepherd walking amongst the flock, rubbing his hands through the wool for ticks and other signs of spiritual disease, and you felt him come and unpack the powers of the age to come. It, it's the nearest—it it is really—the Puritans called it prophecy. One of my mentors, Al Martin, was saying once he was preaching in a church— and with a, with a, he was visiting another church, he was preaching, and normally when you go after adultery, you'd go after men, right? And, in, and he's preaching in this service, and he just felt compelled by the Spirit not to go after men, but go after women. And he began speaking, describing this woman having an affair with someone at the office and so forth, and describing it. And when he finished preaching, the woman literally ran up from the… as he's walking down from the pulpit, she ran out of her pew and ran up to him and fell at his feet and said, I am the woman and it was sobering. But we've all had that kind of experience where the pastor's been preaching, Kyle's been preaching, I've been preaching, somebody else, and the Holy Spirit's come and said, thou art the man, thou art the woman, and you feel your heart being drawn to Christ. And that's a, that's a huge blessing. God has given you blessings in countless other ways. Elders and shepherds here who take care of your soul, who pray for you and call you and ask you how you're doing, and they mean it. And, 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 and those are huge blessings. And that goodness is goodness with design. It's designed to lead you to repentance, not to make you proud of yourselves, but to make you proud of Christ, the great Savior who came into the world to rescue. Has the goodness of God led you to repent of your sins? You must consider the danger of seeing everybody else's sin, not your own. You must consider God's goodness in connecting you to the church. It's goodness with design. And thirdly, you must consider the reality of final judgment. 
Paul says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each the individuality of final judgment, who will render to each according to their deeds. There's no refuge from the Son. There's no escape from the Son. There's only escape in the Son. Each of us, it's a personal matter, final judgment, when God renders to each according to their deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. They're engaged in that long obedience in the same direction, seeking glory and honor and immortality. They're living now intending to live forever. Is that you? Are you living now intending to live forever? These people are, and their expectation of judgment is altogether different. They're not going to meet their judge. They're going to meet their Savior who's been judged in their room and in their stead. Paul says, but to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, they'll receive indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. They're they're not driven by by what God wants. They're driven by what they want. They're self-seeking. They don't obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness. Now, in one sense, that describes us all, doesn't it? But there's all the difference in the world between somebody striving to live for God and yet finding at times they live for themselves, and someone who's really striving to live for themselves and finds themselves almost by accident occasionally living for God. Be very clear in this. You do not earn your salvation never once by doing good works. We evidence salvation. We're saved by Christ's work for us but it's evidenced that we are saved by Christ's work in us, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Has that transfer happened to you? Can you say with Paul, but glory, honor, and peace in everyone who works what is good. We only work out because God has been working in me, and I've been changed and transformed. Because Paul is constantly aware, and so is Jesus, that there are numerous people in the covenant community who are marching with ill-deserved confidence toward final judgment. We need to think about that. It's all over Scripture. And it should draw us to Christ now as our Savior. I've been so encouraged. I've been thinking, preparing to speak on the Marrow controversy as part of this conference in Greenville in early October. And I've been listening to Sinclair Ferguson, and I mentioned this, I think, in one of the sermons last week. But so helpful. He's quoting Gihardus Voss, but he, but the essence of, liberal, of legalism is to disconnect the law from the Father's heart. And then it just becomes a cold standard, trying to earn the Father's smile. Not that at all. It's, 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 it's 
connected to the the Father's instruction to His well-beloved children. And then antinomianism, which is the other side of the coin, where people just abuse the grace of God as if God had gone soft and sin. No, the answer to that, or the problem with that, is it disconnects grace from the person of Christ. It's the grace of God has been epiphanied, Paul says in Titus 2, you remember. The grace of God has been born in Bethlehem's rude stable. It's not God going soft on sin. It's God's Son coming to save us from our sins. And it's that grace in Christ. It's the person of Jesus coming alongside us and saying, you know, say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. Say no to them and say yes to a life that's sensible, righteous, and godly. Look for the blessed hope in my appearing. I've given myself for you to purify you for myself, to be a a son, a daughter of God for my own possessions, zealous for good deeds. And it's Christ. It's that relationship with Christ that's the controlling, essential influence of our lives. And as Paul's driving this home, he's unpacking that truth. As C.S. Lewis said, human beings are the only animals who blush and who know they need to. Why? Because we have the law of God written in our hearts. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. When God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus according to my gospel. The things you keep secret now the things I keep secret now will not be kept secret then. It's a personal matter, final judgment, and the books will be opened and the secrets will be revealed. And I want you to think in your mind now, on that last day, it's it's an awesome thought to have the secrets of our hearts revealed before a watching world in the presence of our Savior young people and older people, can you imagine what it would be like to have all that knowledge in your head and to have your secrets revealed in the presence of your judge and there to be nowhere to hide? Think about that. And one of the best antidotes to religious hypocrisy is to realize that at best, hypocrisy is a passing security. like pulling the pin off a grenade. The moment that spring goes, ping, it's ticking, and it's going to go boom. And you don't want it in your hand when it does. And hypocrisy is like that. The clock is ticking down. We may hide now, but we'll not be able to hide forever. And so we should come. The thought of final judgment should draw our hearts to Jesus and come to Him and expose our hearts to Him and say, Lord, I've done this and this and this. You know it all, O Lord. 
God be merciful to me, the sinner, the tax collector said, and this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. We need to be real with God. There's no hiding from ultimate reality. And then lastly, we should consider not just the danger of seeing everybody else's sins, but not our own. We should consider how the goodness of God should lead us to repentance. We should consider the sober reality of final judgment, but we should consider the root of our confidence. Are you confident that when Christ comes, you will be found on the right side of the great white throne of judgment? And on what do you place that confidence? And the Jews, Paul speaking to here, placed their confidence on their religious knowledge and on their religious badges. Paul says, indeed, you who are called a Jew, and you rest on the law, and you make your boast in God, and you know His will, and you approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, those poor benighted Gentiles, those poor Arminians and, and dispensationalists and people who don't know their theological P's and Q's, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. And Paul says, but you, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? You preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you profit from robbing temples and selling idols to other pagans? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the Gentiles blaspheme God's holy name because of you. If I had a dollar over the course of my ministry, people have said to me, you know, I'd be a Christian, but... I know this person who goes to your church, and they're one thing on Sunday with their tie and their shirt and their coat, but at work they wouldn't give you that. They tyrannize their, their, their employees. They're the worst, meanest boss I've ever worked for, and you sort of think, oh, don't tell me their name. That is in this book. The, blas- the Gentiles blaspheme God's name because of you, Paul says. But I'm circumcised, the Jew says. Or I'm baptized, the Christian would say. And you can take baptism, circumcision out, put baptism in in these verses because it means exactly the same thing. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you break the law, your circumcisions become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. Because like there are Gentiles out there who don't use pornography. They have other sins and they're, they're so forth and so on, but they don't use pornography. You better believe they're going to judge you if you use pornography. There are Gentiles out there who are honest in their tax returns. You better believe they'll, they'll be judging you if you dishonest in your tax returns. 
And then Paul comes into the jugular. He says, for circumcision. For he, sorry, he is not a Jew. And this is an amazing statement. Because the Jews put their confidence in their religious knowledge, how much they know, and in their religious badges. We're, right, we're part of the right club. And that's in, it's like flying first class. You so easily become deceived that you're somehow special if you, the, if you sit at the right end of the plane. And we can be so easily deceived that we come to a church that loves theology, loves our worship, loves all the right things. And we can deceive that into thinking we're someone we are not. And Paul says to the Jews, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who's one inwardly. And circumcision is not outward, but inward in the Spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. There's only so much a rabbi can cut off. He can cut off your foreskin, but he can't cut off your sin nature. I can baptize your head, children, and wash the dust off your head, but only Jesus can wash the guilt and shame off your soul. And what a terrible thing to have the one and not the other have the outward thing and not the inner reality. Where do you stand? Because going to church isn't the answer. Being Presbyterian isn't the answer. Being Reformed isn't the answer. Knowing Christ, having the Holy Spirit come down into your heart, causing you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the answer. As the Holy Spirit brings the Father and the Son into our hearts, and as Sinclair Ferguson says so beautifully, they domesticate us. They teach us to think correctly and speak correctly and control our affections correctly and to make the right choices no, not this way, this way. And they're, they're always corralling us, like the Secret Service corralling Biden. No, no, not that side of the stage. This side of the stage. Here's where the stairs are. And they kind of move him over. And the Holy Spirit does that in our hearts. He comes in and he brings life. He brings Christ. He brings the cross into our hearts. He, he, he cuts off the sin nature. He changes. He subdues our rebellious will. He takes the death away and he brings life in. He takes the darkness away and brings light in. It's one thing to be confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. That's one thing. It's entirely another to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son and have the light of God illuminate your soul with the brightness of the glory of the face of Jesus Christ. If you haven't got that, you could be as Presbyterian as John Knox, but you haven't even begun to begin to live the Christian life. And I say that this morning to you, Christians, brothers, not because I think you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're some of the best Christians I've ever seen. I never know one, but that's not enough, because I'm not your judge. I can only see to the skin. I can't see to the heart of the thing. The heart of the business is always the business of the heart. 
And there are better preachers than me in hell. And there are better Presbyterians than you in hell. Outwardly, they looked perfect, but inwardly they were full of dead men's bones. And so this text, this sermon, as we finish our ministry here and pass the baton on to the elders and to the the Kyle and whoever else God calls to be your next minister as God guides you and leads you in the months to come. But the heart of the business is the business of the heart. And we need to be doing business with Christ and coming to Him and saying, Oh God, have mercy. Search me even now, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me, a hurtful way, a way that would hurt others, a way that would hurt me and lead me in the everlasting way. I used to have a sign on my door. I lost it in my moving from Savannah to here. From Charles Simeon. No amount of homiletical technique can make up for the want of a close personal walk with God. And no amount of Presbyterianism, no amount of Reformed theology, as vital as that is, we can't glorify God as we ought and as we know Him as He is, but no amount of that, no amount of the external badges and the knowledge can make up for the close personal walk with Christ. Draw near to Jesus today, and He will draw near to you and lift up the light of a shining countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray together. O God, our Father in heaven, we come into Your presence today and ask You, Father, that You would search us, that You would try our heart and lead us, O God, and show us how things really stand between us and between Your Son, and grant that He might be our Savior. For one day he will be our judge, and the secrets will be revealed, and the reality will be known. And may it be seen of each of us, O God, that though our sin abounded very great, yet the grace of Christ abounded much more towards us. In his name we pray. Amen.